The Real is presented by the HBO drama Game of Thrones. Time calls it the biggest and most popular show in the world. In the epic season seven of this colossal hit, the people of Westeros fight for their seat on the Iron Throne. Winter is here, and beyond the Great Wall that protects them, a forgotten evil has returned. The most Emmy-nominated program this year is nominated for 22 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series. Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture meets entertainment. I write about movies here at The Times, and like most anyone else these days, I also find myself watching a fair amount of television. And it's a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues here on the entertainment staff at The Paper about just how tough it is for any of us to even keep up. So this is a show about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This week, I'll be joined by Times film critic Justin Chang and film reporters Jen Yamato and Amy Kaufman to talk about a pair of new releases, Crazy Rich Asians, directed by John M. Chu, and Black Klansman, directed by Spike Lee. We'll be talking about how both pictures take on conventional genres, the romantic comedy with Crazy Rich Asians and the buddy cop action movie in Black Klansman, to stake out new territory regarding on-screen representation and dynamic storytelling. Then we'll have Times television critic Lorraine Ali in conversation with Bruce Miller, showrunner of the Hulu series The Handmaid's Tale. Last year, the show won eight Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series, and recently earned 20 Emmy nominations for its second season. Lorraine has written a series of compelling pieces about the way in which the second season of the show reflects and refracts our current cultural moment, something Miller did not shy away from getting into. But first, here's Justin, Jen, and Amy. I'm Justin Chang. I am a film critic for the LA Times. I'm Amy Kaufman. I write about movies and pop culture at the Times. And I'm Jen Yamato. I write about Crazy Rich Asians exclusively this week, which is what I've been doing for the past many days. Well, tell me about that, Jen. First of all, tell me a little bit about just the story of the movie Crazy Rich Asians and then also why it is that this movie in particular seems to have generated the level of excitement around it that it has. Yeah, well, this is sort of not just your normal everyday studio weekend release. Uh, There's a huge groundswell of support around this movie, Crazy Rich Asians, because of what it will mean in terms of representation. It is the kind of big budget, glossy, beautiful, sweeping romantic comedy that we haven't seen in a while, first of all. But it also just happens to star Asian and Asian American actors. And that itself is a sadly rare thing. It's the first movie in 25 years since The Joy Luck Club to center an Asian American story on this scale. And uh, it's going to be, I think, a, a big moment of the year to celebrate. So Jen, why don't you just kind of describe the story of the movie? What's it about? Crazy Rich Asians is adapted from the best-selling novel by Kevin Kwan about a New Yorker, this woman named Rachel Chu, New York professor, who goes to Singapore for the first time with her boyfriend to meet his family, only to discover that his family is the richest, most elite, old-money family in all of Singapore. She's thrown into the lion's den. It's very, like, fish-out-of-water story. I hardly know anything about them. Every time I bring them up, it changes the subject. Maybe his parents are poor and he has to send them money. Let's take a bag and get you checked into first class. Nick, we can't afford this. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. It's interesting that it's also an Asian American in an Asian world. And the cultural clash within that is also very much a part of the story. And Justin, can you tell me a little bit more about, from your perspective, why this movie matters? Absolutely. I mean, I just saw the movie last week and have been 
sort of waiting for this film for a while, as you know, as a lot of people have. That statistic that Jen just said about the Joy Luck Club really hit me pretty hard. And the Joy Luck Club movie, which is a movie that I, like a lot of Asian and Asian American people, have a sort of a love-hate relationship with, maybe. I mean, I you know, the movie drives me crazy, and yet it touches on something that is so kind of irreducibly true, I think, about, you know, certainly about mothers and daughters and 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 the Chinese American experience. But the idea and this is a very different kind of movie, of course. This is a it's a comedy, you know, it's a satire and it's kind of, you know, lifestyle porn to the nth degree, you know? Yeah. So it's a very different thing, which I think is very exciting just by that. But it's it really no, that statistic really the idea there's been a quarter century and this, you know, we've seen encouraging signs in representation, in diversity, certainly for movies made by black directors and telling black stories. How has it been so long? And that's one thing I want to be sure to ask about is simply, it seems rare that a movie arrives that feels so important for reasons that do not have to do with the filmmaking, do not have to do with the storytelling in this movie. This movie itself, its mere existence within the Hollywood studio system is important. And it seems like everybody involved in making it has really been acknowledging that. And Justin, for you as a critic, how do you acknowledge that maybe in whatever you're writing? And do you feel like that pressure, does it come to bear in any way, like on the movie itself? Yeah, I did something while writing my review of Crazy Rich Asians that I don't, I don't think I've really tended to do, which is almost delineate my feelings a little bit. And because, you know, I don't normally care how much a movie makes. I really couldn't care less. And yet here it's like, I actually do care. There are major stakes here. I mean, that story, I think, Mark, you and I were talking, I believe it was in the New York Times, where they were interviewing the director, John M. Chu, who is a Chinese-American and who's been very established in Hollywood for a while. And this is clearly, I think, he would say is his most personal project to date. He said that there are studios and there, you know, there are TV and film projects, Asian-led or Asian-starring, Asian-created, that are just waiting to be green-lighted, depending on how well this movie does. And Jen, as you were doing your interviews for the stories you've been working on, what was it that some of the cast members were saying to you? Because it does seem like everyone involved in this movie is well aware of what this movie means. And so what were some of the things that you were hearing from them as you were talking to people? Well, what's interesting is everybody was well aware of this project for a long time because the book came out in 2013. It had two very successful novel sequels. And so when it was announced that it was being developed into a movie, every single Asian actor on the planet wanted an audition or to send a tape in or to be a part of it somehow. Ken Jeong, according to John Chu, reached out simply to offer his support in any way if he could help amplify the movie and he ended up being cast in it. So I think every Asian performer out there who works in this business is starved as it is for opportunities to play interesting, layered characters that are not caricatures or stereotypes or cliches or just relegated to the background. So everybody, I think, in Asian Hollywood, so quote-unquote Asian Hollywood, was well aware of this project from the start. And I think for the same reason, and for similar to what Justin was saying, everyone's kind of rooting for this to succeed on some level, simply because we all want more of these stories. And I would actually extend that to Black Panther earlier this year. This is a year that we'll see huge event movies that are built around voices, underrepresented voices that have historically not been allowed to have a spotlight on the same sort of scale. And I think Black Panther was a really demonstrative success story that people are hoping to, in some way, 
replicate or sort of build on. And I think what's beautiful about this is that there is now more and more of an intersectional awareness of things like representation in Hollywood, where it's not just black audiences going to Black Panther and enjoying it. It's not just Asian audiences who will go see Crazy Rich Asians and enjoy it. But I think a lot of people are realizing that more flavors across the board deserve support. And mean for like for someone like me who loves romantic films, like sweet, there's another one for me yeah. to go see this Friday with my friends, especially after writing this big story about Netflix and how studios don't make these kind of movies and, you know, they're all on Netflix and they're doing really well there. But it's like as a result of that, our studio is going to look to the success of the films and say like, OK, we need to go back to making these kind of movies. And if Crazy Rich Asians does well, there's another example of like pump us with that romance, baby. Well, you know, you were saying something earlier about the experience of seeing a movie like this on a big screen and having watched every single Netflix romantic comedy this summer, all the ones that Amy wrote about on a small screen and really enjoyed them. Seeing this movie on a big screen, and I've seen it twice now, has been actually a shockingly emotional experience for me. I don't identify directly with Rachel Chu other than she's Asian American. I'm not from... My family is not anywhere near like her family or her experience. So it's not culturally the experience that I have had. But the simple act of seeing Asian American characters on a big screen, an all Asian cast allowed to play out, frankly, a normalized story and not like some epic period foot binding story. I don't know, something very, <laughs> you know, or geisha stories, you yeah. know. Ninjas, whatever, letting them live in a modern setting just as people was so intensely emotional for me that just the sheer weight, the power of representation made me emotional watching it, made me cry. Now, the second time I watched it, I cried because the story just worked like oh, on am I gonna me get so emotion? hard. You're going to cry. Yeah. And I found that three times, I cried three times, and each time they're different tears. And from there, I think we're going to move on from Crazy Rich Asians, which I think everyone should be convinced to go see at this point. And we're going to move along now to talking about another one of the most anticipated films of the year, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which had its world premiere earlier this year at the Cannes Film Festival before now coming out to opening here in the States. And Amy, you were there in Cannes for the premiere of Black Klansman. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the story of the movie? Sure. So, well, this movie playing at Cannes, first of all, was a huge deal because Spike Lee hadn't been there in many years and um, sort of was like feeling like this could be his redemptive moment out of uh, after not winning um, the Palme d'Or, the biggest prize at the festival. Black Klansman did not win that prize, but it still nonetheless got a really good reception. So the movie is based on the real life story of this black cop who worked at the Colorado Springs Police Force, Police Department rather, in 1979. And basically he managed to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan, which is as crazy as it seems. On the phone, he would be talking to members of the Klan, including the former Grand Wizard himself, David Duke, who's played by Topher Grace in the movie, which is amazing. And he then in person had one of his white counterparts go to the meeting so that they could like pull off this ruse. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. 
And yeah, it's very timely despite the fact that the story took place in in the late 70s because Spike Lee bookends the movie with some real world footage from the Charlottesville riots last year. Well, we'll get into that aspect of the movie in a minute. But Justin, why don't you, first of all, just give us some sense of what this means for Spike Lee right now. I think that, you know, he's a filmmaker that really has kind of had his ups and downs. He has kind of been in this a little bit off on his own over the last few years, last few films he's made. And this movie just seems like brought him back in a huge, huge way. And so how would you kind of place this within kind of the trajectory of what Spike Lee's been doing? Yeah, it's interesting. He's been sort of off, you know, making very personal, smaller scaled projects. You know, I I actually, I don't even know how, whether I would describe this personal, to be honest, I haven't kept up with his, um, that part of his career uh, as much of late, like with films like The Sweet Blood of Jesus or even Red Hook Summer. I feel like this is a movie that, you know, I don't think it's as great as, say, maybe Do the Right Thing, but it is very much in that vein of, you know, this is him. You know, sometimes people often say, you know, Spike Lee is like too heavy-handed or too angry or not subtle enough. And sometimes maybe that's true and sometimes it's not. And I think the rebuttal to that would be that these are not times that necessarily call for great subtlety. And I think that when the occasion arises, you know, whether it's like, I mean, I think, you know, one of my favorite Spike Lee movies is like 25th Hour, which kind of emerged from 9-11. It's like something is going on and it really focuses his attention and he just brings it. And this movie, while... You know, I saw it again for the second time uh, the other night, and you know, there's still things about it that you can pick at. Perhaps what's kind of just—I think it's really strong. I think it's the—you know—and I, I actually don't think this is necessarily even a return to form. I really liked Chirac a lot. That was more focused on you know black on black violence in Chicago, and there is kind of he's doing something very kind of very artful and surreal with that movie. And this one, there are surreal aspects to this too. I mean, this movie is even though it's based on a a real life story, the one that we hadn't really heard before. It's very far from straightforward realism. I mean, it is such corrosively black comedy, um, so to speak, corrosively dark comedy is maybe a better term. Um, you know, in those scenes where, you know, the, the phone calls with David Duke alone with Topher Grace and John David Washington, who plays Ron Stallworth. But then there's so much going on, too. I mean, it's very dialectical. It's very, you know, he brings in Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. The movie opens with a clip from Gone with the Wind. And then there's a part where the characters are talking and they reference black exploitation movies like Superfly and Coffee and Shaft. And it's like he is positioning this movie itself within as a corrective to our kind of racist cinematic heritage. And so, which is very spikely, very kind of didactic and, and, you know, def, you know, kind of letting you know, you know, you're watching a movie, but that's okay. You know, so it's, and, and it, the which fact is, that the clan like had its origins in birth of a nation and showing that movie so often. Absolutely. To its membership. I mean, that's seen that, I mean, in those moments, and again, it's maybe not the subtlest moment, but who cares about subtlety? It's like he juxtaposes that clan initiation ceremony with this sequence of Harry Belafonte playing Jerome Turner addressing the Colorado College Black Student Union and talking about what it was like to witness a lynching as a child and juxtaposing that. And so you have this kind of haunting moment of just tragedy and horror juxtaposed with the equal horror of Klansmen slapping their knees and laughing their asses off as Birth of a Nation is playing. And it's really powerful stuff. 
It's something that I think Spike does that few other filmmakers can do, where especially here, it is a period film and it has a lot of fun with sort of the period trappings of its moment. But the entire time you're watching this movie, you can never take your mind off of right now. And then, as I think we'll talk about, the ending of the movie that just slingshots this film right up to today. And the movie's very pointedly being released on the one-year anniversary weekend of the violence in Charlottesville. And so I think just Spike has just this touch that no one else has. I mean, he really does kind of put lightning in a bottle like nobody else does. I think it's, I mean, it's so interesting. Of course, we all know about Charlottesville. And in a time where there's so much bad news all the time, it feels like even that, even like the Las Vegas massacre, like these hugely tragic events somehow get the wham significance of them doesn't hit us as much as it should. And for some reason, seeing the footage of people marching at the end of this movie after a fictional story hit me in the exact right way where I was just like, this isn't this isn't a movie. This is not a movie. This is real life. And to bring it out in such a like specific way really made me realize that I need to be paying more attention, honestly. Well, sort of to follow on that, I found an article on CNN, I wonder what you guys think of it, in which Spike Lee told CNN that he hopes black Klansman inspires Americans not to vote President Donald Trump in office for a second term. Here's what he said, quote, I hope viewers would be motivated to register to vote. The midterms are coming up, then this guy in the White House is going to run again, and what we're going through has demonstrated full evidence of what happens when you don't vote and when you don't take part in the process. What do you guys think of that? Absolutely. I mean, amen. And also, you know, just as simple as that. And this is kind of a, you know, he gave a very... Amy, were you there? You were there for the the press conference in Cannes, you know, where he did we were sitting not hold together. Back. He was going. I was <laughs> there like, were multiple press. There was like Justin one or two was press conferences. To write yeah. it, and every other word was like a curse word, and we can't yeah. put that in the LA Times. So I was like, I don't know how you're going to put this in. But also, he, you know, you can watch those um, press conferences online, and just the fire and the passion that he has there. I mean, literally, he's just kind of apoplectic beside himself once he kind of gets rolling and and talking about things. And so I think this movie just means so much to him. And he wants it to mean so much to us. And I think that that's something that you feel all through it. And I think we have to kind of be sure to acknowledge the fact that this project began when Jordan Peele, auteur of Get Out, reached out specifically to Spike for him to make this movie. So, like, in some ways, Spike was cast as the director of this story. Which I find so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I think the movie is intensely personal, and yet it kind of almost began as a work for hire in in some ways. But you just – it's like when that – it, yeah, and yet there's no doubt it's a Spike Lee joint in every atom of its being. Well, you know? I, I, I can't help but wonder if that's almost like a way – Spike being Spike, the almost begrudging aspect of like, I'll show them, was like something that like got like a fire going inside of him where what should have just been a work for hire, he made 100% a Spike Lee movie. And there may be younger people following in his footsteps or who you know bear the imprint of what he's done. But he's not finished. Like, I think that's another thing that, I mean, you mentioned Chirac. That was a movie, Justin, that was a movie that I liked very much as well. And I think he's one of those filmmakers that's always had it in him to sort of, like, he's not done. Like, there's always was going to be more great films in him. So as much as people like to talk about Do the Right Thing and maybe put him on a shelf, like, I feel like for a long time he's been pointing towards something that was just going to come blazing back. And now another thing that makes this movie exciting is there is just a star-making performance by John David Washington. Amy, tell me a little bit more about him. 
So John David Washington is um, the son of Denzel Washington. And I think not a lot of people know that actually Denzel has an acting son. He went to Morehouse for many years and was a football player there and then actually had like some success in professional leagues. But only recently was like, you know what? I've always wanted to be an actor and like, I know I'm going to be my dad's shadow, but like, screw it. I just really want this. And so um, this is his first big role. He's been on Ballers, that HBO show. Um, But this is his first big role. And um, I am interested to see if he takes off or not. I hope he does. And Justin, you tell me how you feel about it. But to me, it was a fascinating performance. Knowing that this is Denzel's son, you can't help, but you're like looking for these bits and pieces. And for the most part, they're not there. I mean, he is his own person and his own performer. But then occasionally there'll be like a twinkle in his eye or the way that he smiles. And it's like it's like this whole other world opens up and it's kind of fascinating. It is. I mean, I think he's really good. And it it's funny. I don't even know if I knew that he was Denzel Washington's son when I saw the movie for the first time a few months ago. It wasn't maybe till after. And then it kind of threw me. It's really, you know, he gives a really good performance. And I think what's interesting about this is that he's playing someone who is kind of, you know, a troublemaker and sort of, you know, sort of note, but not like a he knows how much things are stacked against him. And it, it you can tell it pisses him off. But he's also kind of smart and controlled enough to kind of tackle it in a way that's going to be, you know, that, you know, he you see in the kind of the, the racist treatment he gets from his white colleagues on the force. And he's the first African-American police officer to work for the Colorado Springs PD. And he kind of he goes in there kind of, you know, not with something to prove, perhaps, but how can he, you know, make a name for himself, for one thing, but also how can he get at the problem somehow? And now as a, as a way to sort of wrap this up, you know, that Black Clans in particular, but also even Crazy Rich Asians, you can't help but wonder how either one of these movies might fare going forward in an Oscar, like an Oscar contention. Thinking about both Black Klansmen and Crazy Rich Asians, both of these movies are ones that could easily become part of an Oscar conversation as the year goes along. And so I think we're going to uh, kind of be rooting for both these films in uh, this year's Oscar race. And so we're going to wrap it up there. And I want to thank all of my guests, my good friends here from the film desk today. And now we'll take a short break, and then we'll be back with TV critic Lorraine Ali's conversation with The Handmaid's Tale showrunner Bruce Miller. The Real is presented by the HBO series Barry. NPR claims it's the best new comedy on television. Barry is a dark comedy about a depressed hitman. On his way to execute a hit on an aspiring actor, Barry follows his mark into an acting class and ends up finding an accepting community in a group of eager hopefuls within the L.A. theater scene. For your Emmy consideration, nominated for 13 Emmys, including Outstanding Comedy Series. For the second season, Miller and his creative team moved beyond the origins of Margaret Atwood's source novel to something even darker and more unnerving. Anchored by riveting performances by Elizabeth Moss, Anne Dowd, Yvonne Strahovski, Alexis Pladell, and Samira Wiley, the story is set in the police state of Gilead, the authoritarian theocracy that takes over what was once the United States. As Lorraine wrote, the bleak future of America depicted in the season two run of The Handmaid's Tale couldn't have cut any closer to the bone in 2018 without sawing us all clean in half. Here's their conversation. So, Bruce, I'm just going to jump right in, okay? Of course. So, season one of Handmaid's Tale won multiple Emmys, including Outstanding Drama, um, which made it the first streaming service to win that honor. But season two has garnered 20 Emmy nominations, which, congratulations on that. But I think with season two, you know, which went off the book, one of the things that made that really drove 
that uh, sort of close to the bone feeling home was that the flashbacks, because the flashbacks showed you how normal life had been and just how how extreme it had become in such a short amount of time. Uh, scary, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible, uh, it's a compliment. I think it's kind of a function of the fact that, you know, everybody is, we're living in a time where people are actually talking about politics and talking about governance and talking about the way the decisions that are made in the government actually affect your life. And, you know, people talk like that, have talked like that all through history, obviously, but I think now it's a little more, the discussions seem a little more vibrant and more urgent. So, you know, I think those discussions influence us as writers and the storytellers just as much as they influence everybody else, you know, the conversations they're having with their kids and with their friends. So the reason the show seems like we're guessing well about what's going to happen in the world, which, by the way, I terribly apologize, and I would very much like our show to slide into irrelevance, if at all possible. (laughs) But it's really a function of the fact that we're reading all the same newspapers you're reading and listening to the same news you're listening to. Kind of the mantra of the book was always Margaret didn't put anything in the book that didn't happen in the real world. So with that in mind, you know, you're kind of trying to be realistic in terms of your extrapolations from today's events, but also you're looking for concrete examples. So I think that when you do that, you're put in the unfortunate position of moving from the kind of dreamy, awful, dystopic future to the possible awful, dystopic future, because we're drawing off of things that already are occurring and just kind of aggregating those. So unfortunately, I mean, in all sorts of ways that I'm very sad that we've come to, you know, we did match up with things that were happening in the world. But honestly, if you can make a show that makes people feel and matters to people and makes them think about something at all. You know, that's what you're trying to do. That's your goal. And although it's nice to feel like I succeeded and that we, our production team and everybody did what we were supposed to do in terms of making people connect, you have to separate that out from the the world you're actually connecting them to, which is particularly awful. Right. And, you know, I think you said this before that, you know, many people have said, well, it's a difficult show to watch. It's heavy. It, you know, it plays on our fears, but you know, some of the best entertainment out there does that. I think what you had said in the past is that, look, if June can live through this and fight back, so can we. And I think the decision at, you know, the end of season two to have her stay in Gilead, to not escape, to not get out, to stay and fight, to, you know, go and find her daughter it sort of pulled in also a theme throughout all of season two of motherhood, of that bond of motherhood, of how strong that is, and how you will do anything for your child. And I just thought that was one of many themes throughout that really sort of also made it a very personal and emotional show as well. Well, thank you. And I agree that that's just another way that the character is inspiring you to action. I mean, for me, it always feels like, you know, as I said before, you know, it's such a dark world and such a difficult world to navigate in. You know, June has such a small area of levers to pull, but she pulls them very expertly. And it really is inspiring, as you said before. And as a mother, it even is, it you know, kind of that just adds another element to it, which is what would you do for your child? And then you, you look at your normal life and think, well, I would do anything. And then what we're doing is just kind of in a fictive way, creating an extreme example. And 
putting someone who I hope you can relate to into that situation that they all oh, now what would you do? And it was a difficult decision for us in the room, and it was a difficult decision for us to make on behalf of June. You know, I think that, you know, we all not only feel protective, you know, to see a character go through what she goes through is very hard, and we try to balance creating a realistic world with not just imagining cruelties, which is just a, you know, that turns into pornography, and we're not interested in doing that. So you want to make sure that you know that it's a realistic world and a world that you feel like, well, June would never leave her child in that world. That world is so horrible. So in some ways, the end of season two is bought by the horrors of season one and two, that when you say, here's our world, and you're a mommy, and you have a child, are you going to let that child stay in this world that we know is so bad? So the weight of kind of how crappy and awful and misogynistic and cruel and dangerous it is in Gilead kind of creates that moment where even though you may not agree with her, and I don't know whether I would have done what she did, I don't, you know, I don't know whether it's the right move, but it's certainly a human move that I can relate to. But when she does that, you have to say, well, I can't leave my daughter here. You know, if she was at her aunt's house and her aunt wasn't very nice, that's one thing. She's in a country where if she makes a mistake, they'll cut her hand off or she's going to get married when she's 13, or she's going to become an aunt, or, you know, none of those routes seem particularly lovely. So I think it was really a way to kind of tell that motherhood story in the context of Gilead and say, okay, well, what does motherhood in Gilead look like? And so in season two, a lot of that was June trying to transfer the skills of motherhood to Serena, because she felt like, oh, well, Serena's probably going to be raising this child that I'm going to bear. I should try to make her see what motherhood is and make her into as good a mother as I can before I'm sent on to my next posting. And in the end, she did a great job. Serena did the worst thing that a mother can do, which is give up her daughter for a better life. Well, you know, it's interesting because many of the people who watch the show who aren't in the industry, who don't know the background of who makes the show, they're saying it's it's amazing. It's a show, you know, created by a woman, you know, written by a woman... (laughs) Show run by a woman. Um, you are not a woman, and but this is a woman's story, and it is so. Yes, men and women are watching it, but it resonates so deeply with women because so many of the topics, but also just emotionally, the motherhood piece that we talked about, the relationships between women. Is it a strange position to be in to be overseeing this show as a man? Oh, it's very strange, and it's strange every day. It's not just strange in the aggregate. You know, I have to remind myself every day that my main character, you know, as well as I know her, June, you know, there's basic differences between us, and one of them is gender. And, and, you know, she goes through the world as a woman and goes through this world, the world of Gilead as a woman. So, you know, across the board, I, I, I I feel that it's essential to question any of my decisions or assumptions, even if I think they don't have anything to do with gender. I think that's the key. Or, you know, so I think we have a writer's room that's almost all women. We, you know, the, you know, most of our directors are women. Certainly our cast is, you know, primarily women. You have to use all of those resources, including, you know, our production designer, including, you know, uh, Zoe White, one of our DPs. You know, you have to ask these questions all the time because you want people to feel comfortable saying, you want Lizzie to be able to say, hey, no one would say this. This is not what would happen just based on my experience as a woman and and be able to have those conversations. Because as much as I have to, through my career, 
your whole career is writing people who aren't like you in, in some essential ways. You know, they're either a lot older, a lot younger, a different race, a different gender, a different job, you know, an alien. You know, they're, they're all sorts of different things. And part of your job is to get in that, the head space of that entity. And if you're very, very good at it, like the people who wrote Toy Story, then you can create a whole world where all these little dolls living in a machine who worship a claw that comes overhead and picks <laughs> one of them up once in a while. That's a lot harder than putting yourself in the mind of a, a you know, trying to imagine the life of a woman, because, you know, in, in that scenario, you don't have any little rubber dolls to help you. You know, you're just imagining it completely out of nowhere. Here, I have a lot of women who are being very expressive, very stubborn, strident, thoughtful about the, the things that June would do. So there's two things. You have to let those people really guide you in terms of guide the show in terms of coming up with story. But also when they write scripts, you have to defer to them. I mean, a lot of that's the big difference in the way that I've been trying to do the show is showrunners, you know, try to put their imprint on every script, you know, they keep things consistent, keep the voices consistent, the storytelling consistent. I try very hard to use a very light touch because I don't want to take the personality of the writer out, and I certainly don't want to take the email personality out of the right out of the scripts when it comes from that point of view. So you just don't want to you don't want to carve up and take out pieces that you don't have to take out because some things I may not quite understand, but they're correct and meaningful to someone who is coming from a different point of view than I am, and and that's important. So I I try to use a light brush when I'm retouching the work of my writers my female writers, all of my writers, but my female writers in particular, in order to keep that essence that I can't add in the script. You know, and I, a lot of the, the imagery and the scenes throughout season one and two, for instance, when we went to the colonies or when depicting the society rolling towards this totalitarian state and you're seeing bodies hanging in public, a lot of these images you know, they would conjure up things that we've seen in the news or in history books before. The hangings in public, to me, it looked like Tehran, the revolution, you know, the Iranian revolution, yeah. the yeah. colonies, you can say, you know, work camps, whatever you want to say. But did you do research for those and pull some of that imagery from history in the news? Or how did you kind of come up with that? We do an extraordinary amount of research. I've been on a lot of shows. This is the most research heavy show I've ever been on. And a lot of that ties back to the fact that we don't want to invent cruelties. And so we try very precisely to kind of understand the cruelties of the past so that we can recreate them without extending you know, beyond them just to kind of make things gross or awful. You know, the world is full of gross and awful, and, and unfortunately, we have plenty of stuff to choose from. But, you know, as you mentioned, the images, you know, from the Iranian Revolution were exactly what we used for the hanging from cranes and things like that. We do a lot of research, and it's kind of split between research that we do and experts. We have, uh, from the very beginning, we've had a very good relationship with both the UN and other NGOs, especially NGOs that work for uh, women's rights around the world. And we talk to them a lot, you know, about precisely what would happen in these situations. There was a scene in season two where June got a chance to see her daughter, Hannah. And the way I would have imagined that scene to happen, I've never, thank God, been separated from my children and then, you know, reunited after a long period of time. But I don't know what that scene is like. So we talked to experts on refugees who had seen thousands of these refugee 
you know, thousands of times where people were forced to be apart and then were reunited. And what is that like? And what's the psychology of the child? And so we talked to child psychologists. We have a contact at the UN who was once a psychologist and a filmmaker and is now working for the UN and works on these kind of refugee crises and genocides across the world. And so, you know, someone who has a foot in a lot of worlds who really helps us, you want to kind of go through very precisely what that's going to be. And strangely, because I had doubts about this at the beginning, I was always worried that, okay, we'll find out what it really is. But when we put that on screen, people are going to not believe it because I didn't believe it. You know, when I heard it, like that the daughter wouldn't come running into her mother's arms and all those kind of things. But doing the research, putting Lizzie in contact with the person who did the research, Jeremy, who directed that episode, have him talk directly with with the researchers. You know, all that stuff has to be filtered through to the props people, to to everybody. So everybody knows, everybody's on the same page of the story we're telling. And then you have to kind of, you know get out of a very young actress, Jordana Blake, who's spectacular and, and, you know, one of just the most adorable people. But you have to get this performance out of her that in some ways doesn't match up with your imagination. So it might not match up with her imagination. You know, right. she's a little girl and I don't know. So you have to kind of guide her to, no, no, no. I know you might think you would feel this way because it's your mommy, but you might feel this way. And so we do research to try to know what the real answer is. Sometimes we change it, but we want to know what we're changing to and from. And we've had great access, and you know, we owe a lot of the show to those people, everybody from religious consultants who help us you know, understand, I'm certainly no biblical scholar, help us understand kind of how Serena might see the Bible, you know, how she might interpret, how Gilead might interpret, and everything from that to, you know, economists, speculative economists who tell us what life would be like if the birth rate fell 90%. What's the effect on the economy? You know, what, oh my so gosh. all of those things you want to kind of wrap up and make part of the world woven together, not just kind of something stuck on the outside. And just my last question, do you think there is such a thing as a, a happy ending for June or The Handmaids, or can they have a happy ending? <laughs> uh, I don't know. After what, they've, after what they've been through, after, you know, systemized rape and having your child torn away and, and being taken away from your everybody you love and keeping prisoner, you know, is there a happy ending? Absolutely. Can you roll back to the person you were before? Absolutely not. I mean, I think as soon as, you know, these kind of traumas don't go away, they're the the biggest traumas you have in your life. And, you know, I've been reading memoirs of people who survived the Holocaust and, you know, uh, the work camps in North Korea and in China and, you know, a million, you know, people who survived Pol Pot and all these things. And, you know, it never goes away. So in terms of a cleansing, no. In terms of a happy ending, any episode that that ends with her alive is a happy ending. And I'm thrilled and proud of her and impressed and completely inspired if at the end of the episode she's still breathing in and out and can move all her limbs. I mean, God bless her for her strength. (laughs) Thank you so much, Bruce, for talking to us about The Handmaid's Tale. Thank you so much for saying all those nice things. Um, (laughs) It's a wonderful show. I'll go get back to work on season three. All right. Excellent. Get to it because we're waiting. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll write as fast as my little legs will carry me. Thanks to Lorraine and Bruce for that conversation. And you can find more of Lorraine's writing on TV and about The Handmaid's Tale online at latimes.com. For all of us at The Real, thanks for listening.